There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, last week we talked about where stock markets were at. We're giving some update on the statistics year to date and what happened in the previous year. We also talked about preparing for one of the inevitable events in life, and that being death. It is. You're <laughs> actually sounding quite upbeat about that. <laughs> well, I don't mean to, but you know, we talked about what you need to do to prepare, like from a financial perspective anyways, what documents are critical for your loved ones, what plans should be set. We talked about MAID, which was an interesting discussion. I think it's a good episode for people to go back and listen to if they're interested in that stuff. Absolutely. So this week, we're not going to talk about death. We're going to talk about a rebirth, Greg. Really? Yep. It's the rebirth of the 60-40 portfolio. I thought that was dead. No, that's just what all of the financial articles told you last year, that it was the death of the 60-40 portfolio. And we did an episode last year on the annual death of the 60-40 portfolio. Exactly. Yep. Because it is very common for these financial writers to write about how the 60-40 is dead on a regular basis, only then to reverse course and write about how the 60-40 is back when things look better. It's kind of ridiculous, actually. Really? But when we do our plans with clients, there's no way that we say, well, this year the 60-40 is dead, and then the next year, oh, it's back, and we should be in the 60-40. We believe that if that's the right asset allocation for somebody, that's the way it should be during bad years and good years. So let's get into it. So as we talked about last week, the U.S. stock market was down around 30% at its low point in 2022. Here's that joke again. Hindsight is 2022. Exactly. I I just like saying that. Good one. So this happens from time to time. We have these bear market sell-offs. It's just part of the cycle. But the other issue was that the bond market was down about 12% at the same time. And that was due to rising interest rates from central banks trying to fight inflationary times. And I know you're going to get into that a little bit in our discussion, right, Greg? Roger. The year ended with both major asset classes having negative returns, which was a first in history as far as I understand. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often. It certainly happens in various quarters, various periods, but pretty rare to see both of those asset classes down for the full year. Yeah, and I guess that's a function of calendar year returns versus rolling period returns. Regardless, this led to many financial writers talking about how there was this death of the 60-40 portfolio, how it just didn't work. Their explanation for the death was not because of stocks, it was because of bonds. Interesting. So MarketWatch wrote in January of 2023, just a month or so ago, that a 60-40 portfolio that they, I don't know, modeled, I suppose, had a return of negative 16 to negative 17% for 2022. So in their words, it just didn't work. Well, we would argue that they're wrong. So here's some simple math to follow. If you had 60% of your money in the stock market and the stock market was down, I won't say 30%, let's just say 20%, because that's kind of where the S&P 500 closed. 
and you had 40% of the bond market, and that bond market was down 12%, like it was last year. If you did the weighted rate of return, you would have had negative 12% from equities, stocks, and negative 4.8% from fixed income or bonds, which is exactly where MarketWatch got their data from. Put those together, you have minus 16.8, and the data they used was minus 16 to minus 17%. But what if you had 100% of your money in equities during that bear market? Well, then you would have been off 20% at a minimum. I mean, that's not saying if you had 100% in certain sectors. That's just saying you're invested in the equity market. So having bonds in your portfolio still cushioned some of the blow from the stock market. Like you weren't down 20 to 30%, you were down 16 to 17%. Which is one of the reasons for owning bonds in the first place. That's right. And now a lot of people argue though, but I own these bonds because they should do well when stocks are doing poorly. They still did. They just didn't do as badly as stocks, so they did better. They did relatively better, for sure. That's right. I mean, bonds never guarantee a positive return every year. Nobody ever said that. And so people that expected, I'm going to get a positive return from bonds every year, were just expecting the wrong thing. Now, most of the time, they do have positive returns. I think the data we looked at was since 1994, there have been three negative returns in the bond market. That's right. But keep in mind that bonds... They have something that stocks don't have, Greg. They mature. They mature at par. It reminds me of a joke from, do you ever see the the movie? I know I've used this before, G-Force. Do you ever watch that kid's movie? No, I didn't. It's a fun movie, fun family movie about superhero guinea pigs. That's why it's called G-Force for guinea pig. Okay. And the lady guinea pig makes a joke in the movie that says, men are like government bonds. They take way too long to mature. Yeah. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) That one's always stuck with me. So having bonds that were down 12% means that this is the price that they were trading at at that day. But every one of those bonds has to mature at par. They're loans. A bond is just a loan. You essentially become the bank. You're lending your money to a company or a country or a city or some entity. And in return, they pay you interest during the course of that loan period. And then at the end, they give you back your money at part. So the fact that the bond market was down in a weird way, as long as you held on to your bonds, it almost didn't matter. That's kind of a bold statement to make, but it didn't matter unless you had to sell. That's right. That's the problem with just looking at market values from day to day. Bonds are marked to market, as they say. And so they have a price every day that's set by prevailing levels of interest rates and other factors. But it sort of doesn't matter. If the bond was trading above par, it wouldn't matter because if you hold it to maturity, you're going to get par back anyway. So if you bought a bond that was down 12% and you knew it was going to mature at par, well, then, I don't know, there's simple math around that. Like, let's say it paid you interest too. So all of a sudden, you add the interest in and you're guaranteed. Well, not I don't want to use the term guaranteed because we can't use that word, but It's highly likely, Greg. That's right. Extremely highly likely you're going to get your money back at the end of the period, plus you're going to receive interest. Exactly. So if that bond pays a coupon of, let's say, 3% per year or an interest payment of 3% per year, and you hold that bond for three years, and you know you're going to get back 12% in market value at the end of the three years, plus 3% a year of interest, which is just simple math, 9%, well, then I guess your expected rate of return over those three years is somewhere around 22%. So that sounds an awful lot like a little more than 7% per year for three years. 
which is simple math. Just math. But I think if you gave the option to most investors and said, look, you can invest in this thing. It's highly likely, extremely highly likely, you are going to return 22% over the next three years. Most people would say that's a pretty good deal. So let's carry on with this example a little bit, this three-year example, because Forbes published an article in 2022 talking about the average equity rates of return after a bear market. This is really important because we can all agree we're coming out of a bear market. Well, we hope we're coming out of it. Well, we might still be in it, but at some point we're coming out of it. So in that article, they identify the one-year rate of return for the NASDAQ as being, historically speaking, coming out of a bear market somewhere around 22%. So I think in our last episode, we talked about how the NASDAQ was down, I think it was 33% last year, and that historically speaking, in previous cycles, coming out of a bear market, the one-year return after a bear market was 22%. Didn't we say last week, I think in January, the NASDAQ was up like, I don't know, 13% already. Yeah, so (laughs) it's only got nine to go. The three-year number coming out of a bear market was like 87%. So let's just, for fun, use half of those return numbers just to be conservative. And if we say that the three-year return, instead of being 87%, is more like 44% or something like that, or roughly 14% per year, and we use that same 7% projected rate of return from bonds that are going to mature and pay us interest over three years... Well, then a 60-40 portfolio in the first year would have an expected rate of return or somewhere around 11 to 12% per year, and that would carry on for three years. Well, that doesn't sound dead to me. It sounds like you're saying the reports of the death of the 60-40 portfolio have been greatly exaggerated. This is like, instead of a coroner, coronary? Yes. Coronary report, it should be a missing persons report. Oh, I see. Yeah, and then cor- coroner's was, report. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Coroner. Yeah. <laughs> I said coronary, didn't it? Isn't it like your heart? Yeah. So instead of a report of somebody's death, a certificate of death, it's just they went missing for a little period of time and then they've come back. So I would argue that this is actually probably a pretty good time to be investing without getting into market timing in things like the 60-40 portfolio. I mean, unless you don't like rates of return that come in somewhere between 11 and 12% per year. I mean, well, exactly. maybe you don't. No, that's right. And listen, I mean, those rates of returns, obviously, as we've said before, don't take those as our prediction for the rate of return. No. We're just talking about the fact that stock markets historically have always recovered from bear markets. And likewise, bonds have done the same for different reasons, as you say. But now is not the time to be fearful. Now's the time to be optimistic. Well, even remember the lost decade. Wasn't yep. that the 2000 to 2009? For U.S. stocks. U.S. stocks actually had a negative decade yep. for returns. That's right. But as long as he stayed invested, I don't know, maybe two more years, sure. he did quite well. And of course, if you had a diverse portfolio and not just a portfolio entirely of U.S. stocks, you probably came out feeling pretty good about things. So let's talk a little bit about what happened last year in the bond market specifically. 2022 was interesting in a couple of ways. It saw the fastest pace of inflation in decades, and it also saw the fastest policy response by central banks since 2008 after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So at its peak, inflation topped 9% in the U.S., and it topped 8% in Canada. I think that was back in June. In response to that, the Canadian central bank raised the overnight rates from about 0.25% in February of 2022, a year ago, to 4.25% in December. 
And in the U.S., the overnight rate increased from an average 0.08% in 2022 to 4.33%. So that is a very dramatic increase in the rates the central banks you know, charge for overnight money or the discount rate. Which impacted a lot of borrowers. Absolutely. Because when central banks raise their overnight rate, it has the effect of causing interest rates to rise along what we call the yield curve. The overnight rate certainly affects things like bank prime rate. In Canada, I believe the bank prime rate now is 6.7%. That's up from, I don't know, 2.45% a year ago or something. Well, yeah. So anybody that's in a variable rate mortgage, their payments have gone up dramatically in that period. And so you do see the rising interest rates reflected along the yield curve, which again, as we've talked in the past, the yield curve is just looking at the yields on bonds of different maturities from two months or in fact overnight all the way up to 30-year bonds. And last year we did see a lot of times people will use the 10-year bond as kind of a benchmark. And last year we saw 10-year bond yields on both sides of the border increase from maybe one and a half percent, let's say, before the rate hiking cycle began to over four percent at one point at their peak. Quite a jump. And what that meant for bonds, as we've talked in the past, is the price of bonds declined in response to rising interest rates. As we've talked before, for in very simplistic term, interest rates go up, bond prices come down and vice versa. So they have this inverse relationship. Exactly. If you want to be fancy. (laughs) That's a fancy technical term. Inverse. Inverse. As a result, bonds turned in probably their worst calendar year performance in history. And again, minus 11.5% in Canada and the U.S. aggregate bond index lost more than 13% last year. And those losses are pretty significant and absolutely contributed to the poor performance of the 60-40 portfolio that we just talked about. But here's the thing. I mean, just because an asset class had a bad year, I mean, is that a justification for changing long-term investment strategies? To me, that sounds a lot like dirty words around here, and that sounds like market timing. Imagine, let's say we decided not to hold stocks because they might go down or might have a negative year. Well, we would have missed out in the greatest bull market in history, which ended last year. And it's really not a long-term strategy that would support building wealth over time. Any strategy that has you making large tactical shifts in allocation because of the possibility of a negative return is not one that you can execute over a long period of time. Interestingly enough, I read an article last year and it pointed out the effectiveness of tactical asset allocation by fund managers because during a period that you just described, stock market's down, bond market's down. Anybody that's tactical should have the ability to trade and have their finger on the pulse and do well during those periods. And what it showed is that, I don't think it was 100%, but I think it was like 99% of those tactical asset allocation fund managers underperformed. As we talked in our discussion on the 60-40 portfolio last year, what most people that were claiming the 60-40 portfolio was dead because of the bonds, we're just allocating the 40% that were in bonds to other things. Things like alternative asset classes like real estate, which had a bad year, private debt and private equity, which may have had a bad year. It's hard to tell because of the lack of liquidity in those areas. Precious metals. Precious metals. Commodities. Commodities had a pretty good year. If you guessed right and said, okay, well, I'm going to take all my money out of bonds and put it into energy and commodities, okay, that might have worked. But for how long? When do you get out of your commodities and get back into bonds? Well, right now. Well, we know that because that's history already. Well, actually, that's a good point because two years ago, if you said you should invest in energy, 
People are yeah. like, you're crazy. Oh, yeah. When, Energy's when, dead. When oil futures were negative. <laughs> so again, it's very difficult. We've talked about this a lot. Very difficult to implement a market timing strategy that works consistently. And so here we are. The important thing is, what can we expect going forward from our bonds? We just talked about the mathematics of bonds. We've also talked, by the way, about how macroeconomic forecasting is extremely difficult to do, given the sheer number of variables to consider. But it doesn't stop people from trying to do macroeconomic forecasting. And there are some assumptions going into the next year that are likely reasonable to make, given the current situation. I just want to highlight some of the things that came up in a recent webinar by PIMCO. And PIMCO does these quarterly series. It's called PIMCO Dialogue, a quarterly series focusing on the Canadian bond market. And what does PIMCO know? They're only the largest fixed income manager in the world. What should they know? Exactly. Here's some of the themes that came out of the most recent dialogue. And some of these, I think we can all agree, could make sense. It doesn't mean they're guaranteed to happen, but they could make sense. Number one, they expect inflation to moderate in the U.S., in 2023, from 8% last year to about 4%, and that could happen fairly quickly due to things like supply chain issues that are now being resolved and stuff like that, and ending the year maybe at about 3%. Well, who knows whether they're right, but it's probably a reasonable assumption given that the recent data already shows inflation slowing, and that data has been coming in month over month. So if you look at the highest rate of inflation in the U.S., it was 9.1% in June, and that declined to 6.5% in December on a year-over-year basis. Same is true for Canada, where inflation peaked at 8.1% in June and declined to about 6.3% in December. Canadian inflation is predicted to be down to 2.5% by year-end. So again, looking at what would the year-over-year inflation rate be by the year-end, and PIMCO thinks it could be down by 2.5%, down to 2.5%. So again, whether or not we actually hit those numbers is one thing to be determined by time alone. But I think directionally, we can all agree that it seems that inflation is slowing. If inflation is slowing, that's positive. A year ago, everyone was talking about, is inflation transitory? I kind of was in that camp. I said, I think it's transitory. As it really spiked, people would say, look, you're wrong. It's not transitory. But actually, if it goes back to 2.5% by whatever time frame you just talked yeah. about there, then you could actually argue, well, maybe it was. Well, I guess it all comes down to how do you define transitory in terms of what's the long term? Is it the long term or the short term? And if we can get, like we have any impact on it, if inflation comes down to three or two and a half percent or something by a year, and that's pretty good. Keep in mind, as we talked before, and I mentioned last week, inflation is a rate, not a level. So even if the rate of inflation drops down to 2.5% year over year by December, it still means the prices are still a heck of a lot higher than they were two years ago because we will have gone through the 9% inflation periods as well. That's a really important point. You should say that again. Inflation is a rate, well, inflation not a level. Is a rate. It's not a level. So the consumer price index is a level. And that tells you what do things cost today and what did they cost last month and a year ago. And so if the rate of inflation drops down to 2.5%, A, prices are still going up at 2.5% year over year, and B, they've already had their price increases of 9% or whatever the last year's average inflation rate of 8%, let's say. They're still 8% higher. I mean, the only way for prices to go down is actually for deflation, and most people are not hopeful for deflation. No, that's a bad thing. Deflation would be a bad thing. I mean, for consumers, we would all be happy with deflation. 
But disinflation, meaning the slowing of inflation, would be a good thing for everyone. So that was one theme. The second theme they talked about is expecting that we're close to the central bank's holding interest rate policy at or near current levels. Well, again, not a big stretch since the Bank of Canada governor came out and said that they're going to hold it near current levels to see exactly what happens in the economy because of the lag of monetary policy and actual inflation. Both the U.S. Canadian central banks raised their rates just 25 basis points or 0.25% of the recent policy meetings. The U.S., they talked about they're leaving the door open to another couple of rate hikes. But again, the rate of rate hikes, there was, I think, seven rate hikes last year, and they raised rates by over 4%. The expected rate hikes this year would be much, much smaller than that, maybe 025 to 0.75%. So clearly, that would be a trend that is not hard to imagine being one that could play out. The other theme that PIMCO talked about is they believe that the real economy adjustment maybe has not yet really occurred because of these lags from monetary policy activities. And so a lot of the rate hikes taking interest rates to where they are now, four and a quarter percent, means that we could be in for some increased economic pain from reduced economic activity and increasing unemployment down the road. It could be that the impact of these rate hikes just hasn't really been felt yet in the economy. And in the U.S., employment numbers are very strong, and so it doesn't look like, at least for the time being, that the impact on the economy has really taken hold. There's where there's this discrepancy in the definition of a recession that you hear about in the U.S., because Janet Yellen keeps saying, how do you have a recession if you've got unemployment levels at 3.5%? It can't be. But most economists would say, well, the definition of a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth. And there seems to be a lot of movement around that, depending on what your belief is about the current economic situation. So if things seem bad, I think everybody would say, oh, yeah, we're in a recession. And we had two quarters of negative GDP. Whereas if things actually don't seem all that bad and you've got low unemployment and et cetera, et cetera, then people are more hard pressed to commit to the recession. But idea. that's where I find it's funny, the financial writers too, though, because at the end of 2022, they talked about, okay, 2023 is going to probably have a recession. It was like, well, so what? Technically, we're already in one. Like, that's the easiest thing to forecast. And listen, the market has been down, as you pointed out, almost 30%. And the NASDAQ was down over 30% last year. So markets are usually a leading indicator. And that could indicate that we're in for some economic pain this year. Who knows? We'll see. But what are the investment implications for all of this? Well, since it appears we're near the end of the rate hiking cycle, particularly in Canada, bonds are attractive for a number of reasons. First of all, there should be lower volatility in bond prices and yields. With interest rates last year changing by 4%, that creates a lot of volatility in bond prices and bond yields. With interest rate changes being much less, then it would stand to reason that volatility in those prices and yields will be less. Second, forward bond returns are quite tightly correlated with starting yields. So what do we mean by that? If you're buying bonds today and they have a current yield of 4%, that's a better indication of your long-term expected return from bonds. Because what it basically says is, well, if subject to interest rates not moving significantly on either side of that, then that's your expected return is the yield. Just like all those times we bought a lot of bonds over the years, sometimes with interest rates higher and sometimes with interest rates quite low. And so that provides a forward expectation. Luckily, we typically buy bond funds and bond funds 
have a lot of cash flows, meaning cash is always being created in those funds. And all of those cash flows are being reinvested at the current yields. And so even if you bought a bond fund when yields were 1.5%, it doesn't mean you're locked into 1.5% returns for the rest of time because all of those bonds in the portfolios will mature and will spin off interest payments, which will all be reinvested at higher yields going forward. But if you bought a five-year GIC last year at 2%, that's your return. That's your return. And thirdly, there's been a lot of dispersion in the bond markets, and that's not something that affects us individually. It's more relevant to the managers of the bond funds. It means certain types of bonds are offering attractive yield spreads when you compare them to government bonds and to other investment options. But the bottom line is it gives bond fund managers an opportunity to add value by taking advantage of the existing conditions in the bond market. And that's the great thing for bond managers compared to stock or equities managers. Bond managers can look at what exactly is the situation in the market and take advantage of those situations without having to make broad guesses as to the future direction of earnings or something like that. And they do that by adjusting their duration? They adjust duration. They take advantage of the shape of the yield curve. You know, when the yield curve is quite steep, they can take advantage by capturing capital gains as bonds get a year closer to maturity. They become more valuable. That's what bond managers do. They manage duration or maturity, the term to maturity in their bond portfolios. They manage credit quality. Those are the two biggest risks in bonds, term to maturity and credit. And I don't think most people know how big the bond market is, Greg. The stock market gets all the emphasis or emphasis. When you turn on the news, what do they always report? The TSX, the Dow, maybe the S&P 500, the dollar, and the price of oil. Nobody ever says, well, the bond market did this. But the bond market is almost twice the size of the global stock market. And nobody talks about There's it. There's a lot of bonds out there. Crazy. It's boring. It's not exciting and doesn't feel like gambling or being at the casino. Nobody's high-fiving with their buddies at work at the bar afterwards saying, hey, you know, gained 20 basis points on my bonds today. <laughs> <laughs> Although you do know you're around a bond person and they use the term basis points. Exactly. Instead of like point two. Yeah, that's right? right. So having said all that, there is no way to accurately predict future return on bonds any more than we can on stocks. However, Unlike stocks, as you mentioned in the earlier part of the podcast, there are some mathematical features of bonds that allow us to make certain assumptions. One is that because of the high starting yields, even if interest rates rise further, the loss in value will likely be offset by higher interest payments. If you're earning 4% and your bond goes down 2% because of interest rate hikes, you're still going to make 2%. So the volatility is lower now that interest rates are higher. Secondly, if history is any guide, Bad years and bond returns are almost always followed by pretty strong years. And again, not a guarantee because we actually saw losses in both 2021 and 2022. However, you look back to many previous years like 1994, bad year in Canadian bonds down 4.5%. I believe 1995 bonds are up over 20%. So you can get a nice snapback just like the stock market can. And lastly, and most importantly, because mathematically... Bonds that have declined in value will increase back to par by the time they mature. All you really need to do is wait. So the rationale for bonds in a portfolio, same as always, they provide income, they provide a buffer to the equities, volatility in the portfolio. The conditions are currently better than they have been for a year for bonds to do what they're supposed to do. And we're talking about investment grade bonds. We should have made that clear at the beginning because there's all kinds of layers of 
bond sure. credit quality. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I think as long as you're sticking to investment grade bonds, and that is the bond market that was down 12%. That's right. Yeah, we're talking about index-like bonds and bonds that have relatively little chance of defaulting. We typically talk about government bonds that way, although I guess depending on what happens in the U.S. debt ceiling discussions this year, maybe the U.S. will default on their bonds. Yeah, right. I'm not going to make too bold of a prediction, but I predict that they're not going to default. A topic for another podcast, for yeah. sure. Anyways, well, I think that takes us to the end, Greg. It does. So I don't know what we got up next. If it's not bonds, it's probably more exciting. It could be. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> All right, then. Till next yeah, time. See you, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.